Today's program is brought to you by Nutrislice, helping school nutrition programs who want to do a little more with their marketing communications. For more information, visit Nutrislice.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning and welcome to another episode of Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network, the podcast for professionals working in K-12 child nutrition. Um, It is December already, and I don't know how that happened, um, but it's the time of year for looking back. Um, And with us today to do just that is the former executive director of food service for the Dallas Independent School District, Dora Rivas. Um, Dora left her post in Dallas in August of this year. It was her 41st year in school food. Um, And by the time she finished in Dallas and for many years before that, Dora was an iconic figure in the industry. Um, She is recognized nationally as an early adopter of healthy menu reform, as a school breakfast pioneer, uh, as a gifted Uh, business administrator. Her many awards for excellence in school food service and dietetics um, include the Gold Star Food Service Achievement Management Excellence uh, or Fame Award, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Dallas Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, the Food Service Operator of the Year Silver Plate Award, and the SNA Texas Director of the Year Award. And, and that's just a sampling. Um, you know, personally, one of the qualities I admire most um, in Dora is her inclusive style of leadership and her compassion for students, parents, staff, and uh, colleagues in the school community. And that can be a hard thing to hold on to when the job involves feeding a student body of more than 160,000 students. So we're, we're going to be talking about that and lots more. Um, but first, let me pause to say good morning, Dora. Good morning, Laura. And uh, what a pleasure to be here reminiscing with you at the end of the year. <laughs> yes. And, and I have to say welcome back because some listeners will remember that you first joined us in November 2014 along with Stephen O'Brien of New York City School Food. Um, bef- well, before we launch into memoir mode, um, we, we should make clear that you are not retired. Uh, you, <laughs> you, you dove right into a new life with the Department of Defense almost immediately after leaving Dallas. Um, what are you doing now? Yes, and, and actually, um, I could not report that I was taking this new job at the point that I announced my uh, uh, retirement uh, because it was all still kind of, you know, evolving. And, and I knew that that was the direction that I was going to go, but I just could not um, miss out on the opportunity to work with child nutrition with APHIS, which is the you know, under the Department of Defense mm-hmm. Army Air Force uh, Exchange Service, serving um, children uh, that are stationed with their parents uh, and families overseas. And so um, this really, you know, was going to give me an opportunity to just further expand, you know, my knowledge and opportunity to serve children, um, you know, who through, um, you know, the lives of their families moving on and serving our country, um, you know, I I just could not miss out on that opportunity to serve them. Well, so, and you're moving from a national to kind of a global um, platform now. So that's just a really cool thing to, to do next. Um, but so, but now let's dial way back. Um, you know, I, I want to go back to the beginning. You're, you're one of those lucky people who knew from a really young age what you wanted to do. Like, and how did that happen for you? Well, it happened because of, um, you know, the health of, of my father when he was in his 40s. Um, they were, his family always predisposed to diabetes, mm-hmm. and his mother actually went blind with diabetes. And so when he became a diabetic at 40, um, due to at that time he was, he was gaining weight, and so he had adult onset diabetes. Mm-hmm. And I worked with my mom on trying to find ways to make meals enjoyable for him 
him and to cook for him and uh, um, modify, you know, some of the recipes that he enjoyed uh, that were uh, in our family. We had a lot of Mexican food and a lot of foods that we didn't want him not to continue to have. So uh, very early, I was in middle school at that time, uh, I became very interested in cooking and in modifying and working um, with my dad's health care providers on on his diet. Right. And and you grew up in South Texas where, you know, you were surrounded by um, lower income Mexican immigrants and even migrant workers. So you were familiar with public health issues that some of these people had, um, you know, outside of the home. That's correct. And, mm-hmm. it, and it was n- not just the quality of the food, but just the, the lack of food in, mm-hmm. in many cases and the access to healthy food. I was very fortunate. I was raised on a farm and uh, had access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And as I said, because my mother, you know, was able to um, uh, work uh, with a dietitian and my health my dad's health care providers and had good advice, we were, I was able to very early on understand the difference that nutrition made on our health. Right. And so when I went to college to study, uh, I knew that I wanted to go into that arena of, of nutrition. And with the encouragement of my professors at that time, I thought I wanted to be a home economics teacher and go into uh, teaching cooking and healthy cooking. Uh, and they said, well, no, you know, there's dietetics and there's such a need for that. And especially in South Texas, mm-hmm. where there's such a low income um, and, and um, you know, families who need that type of help. So you became a dietitian, and at a very young age, your first job like was an internship that morphed into a job at a clinic that served um, a lot of these um, migrant workers and lower-income Mexican immigrants. What were you doing there? Actually, coming out of college, I didn't have a job, and mm-hmm. my dad encouraged me to volunteer at a migrant health clinic. Mm-hmm. And there, I met a dietitian, uh, Sister Ramona, and she encouraged, you know, worked with me, uh, hired me, and then, you know, mentored me on learning how to work with um, the migrants that came to the clinic and low-income families that had very poor knowledge of nutrition Mm -hmm. and diet. And so from there, then I went on to work in hospitals. And there I I saw the ill effects of the poor diet and the fact that um, really school nutrition and working, you know, with families on on learning how to change uh, their their way of eating, and working um, with uh, teaching them and motivating them to change their old habits um, was was what encouraged me to uh, con- to continue in my interest in school uh, meals. I knew that developing good habits was a better approach to improving health of our communities and the prevention of obesity and hypertension and, and diabetes because by the time you're older and you're sick and you're already in a hospital, it's very hard to change old habits. And so I felt that with nutrition education and teaching good habits early on, that that might have a better impact on improving the health of our community. Right, right. You you just answered my next question was, you know, why did you accept a lower paying position in the Brownsville schools instead of staying in the hospital? So you can see why that was. Um, So you started out in Brownsville what was it 1977 correct yeah correct and and you know it's a border town um mostly mexican speaking like if not entirely um yeah about 98 percent to 99 of of the uh, student population was hispanic Mm -hmm. and and most of them are all spanish speaking and so that was a real um, benefit to me having grown up with in a in a family where our first language was Spanish, and having worked in in the migrant health clinic, I already had worked um, on on honing my skills on translating materials for parents, so that that way, if I 
was offering or or doing a promotion uh, with the cafeterias that I could also provide it in Spanish to the parents so mm-hmm. that they could encourage the children to to be involved in these activities. Right. So you were the first dietitian um, at the district, and you quickly kind of um, you know honed in on public health goals. Um, and and you so and, and tell us what the, what they were for starters. Well, one of the things I knew is that children had a difficulty accepting fresh fruits and vegetables unless they were raised on a, on a farm. And um, I think migrant workers, having worked on on farms, might uh, you know be more attuned to to tasting the food that they were picking and so uh but many were were not migrant workers there's a lot of hispanic community that are not migrant workers it's actually a very small part of of the population mm-hmm. and so um we started incorporating more fresh fruits and vegetables daily as well as more whole grains uh, we started back in 77 offering whole wheat bread and got our bakeries to do our uh, whole grain hot dogs and hamburger buns. And uh, initially, um, the, the parents weren't as excited as I was about yeah. the, the changes in the menu. Yeah, so, so you actually got, um, you know, pushed back about... Um, you know, taking down the whole milk to low fat and introducing whole grains. So you you actually had to do a lot of outreach to explain what this was all about, right? Well, and I understood that a big part of not accepting the changes had to do with education, because whenever we went to low fat milk, uh, they thought that we were taking something away and making it less nutritious. Mm -hmm. And so I went on ahead and organized a a workshop for parents and invited them to come in and talk about the menus and talk about why why we were making the changes. And I invited a doctor. Doctors are very well respected in in the community, and he was a, a Hispanic bilingual doctor who was able to show them slides on how very early on when uh, they had done surgeries and that they could see plaque developing in arteries of of children and young people and so i i think he was very convincing and and the community then began to understand that we were only making improvements to their menu and not necessarily taking something away from them and as they began to uh, then transition into the healthier choices they actually be, began to change their habits even in their own homes. I I went to a PTA. um, It was, I'm sorry, not a PTA. It was a parent open house. And Mm -hmm. a parent came to me and said, my child's asking me to buy whole wheat bread. And uh, we had never had it in our home, but because they're having it in the school, they now want it in the home. And so I, I could start hearing that it was making an impact. And this is in the 70s. That's that's really what's so remarkable. So, you know, and, and also this is a demonstration of what I was saying earlier about your inclusive style, um, you know, involving people from the get-go to, to make it happen. Um, and and you, you told me that the cooking um, in Brownsville was there was a lot of Tex-Mex kind of food, and you had to find a way to, as you had for your dad, to to make it healthier for them. Correct. I I think that uh, offering foods that on the menu that they are familiar with at home Mm -hmm. was was the biggest challenge because when you're modifying recipes to quantity, um, they're not going to taste exactly like home cooking, especially Mm -hmm. if you are also, as we see today, modifying from the lard to at that time we were switching to margarine Mm -hmm. and and then we were uh, not putting in as much sugar and as much salt. We were modifying the recipes, but we were making them familiar foods. We were making tacos and chalupas, and we hand-rolled our enchiladas, and we had a very... um, 
a lot of mothers at that time that worked in the cafeterias. So they had good cooking mm-hmm. uh, skills. And so they understood what we wanted the product to look like. And and so uh, we had, you know, just really good results with with the menus. And then with adding the fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, I was really proud uh, of the way our lines looked. And we yeah. started doing more marketing and promoting. And and so uh, I think uh, our, our families there were very, very happy uh, with the progress. Well, and at a certain point in, in this journey, you started attracting national attention. The American Dietetics Association um, recognized you as, as, a, as a youth leader. What was, what was that award, and when, and when did that happen? Well, because I was very young, I started working in 77, and I, I think I was like maybe about 26 at the time. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I was 30, I received the Young Dietitian of the Year Award for Nutrition Education because of the changes that we were making in menus as well as nutrition education. Mm-hmm. So I had the opportunity to go and speak at a national conference and uh, be able to share so, some of the in, information, uh, some of the strategies that we were using to improve um, the health of our families there uh, in a very low-income area. And if we could do it there, it really had more far-reaching effects in being able to expand and and uh, you know take it beyond our communities. As well as I know many dietitians who were starting to get into the school mm-hmm. nutrition arena as a profession uh, were also starting to uh, do make those changes nationally. Right. And there was a lot of interest on having successful programs and being able to share. But it was still really new, and there you were. And you were promoted to um, director in Brownsville before you turned 30. Is that right? Uh, I I think I was just past third, just a little over thirty. I received yeah. the award in nineteen eighty, yeah. um, and I lose track of age, but it was soon after. <laughs> I'm not being real exact on that. Was a long time ago. Yes, as, as I said <laughs> but earlier, it was eight but, years after I got there, and I was twenty six. Yeah, I must have been about thirty three. Yeah, it it really helps to know what you want to do so early because look <laughs> look where you were at that point. So one of the things that really um, put you on the map in Brownsville, in addition everything you talked about was uh, innovations you made in breakfast. You you introduced breakfast in the classroom, and it was possibly the first place in the country to to have that, right? Yes, I believe it was. And the reason we did it was because one of our school principals, we had just implemented, and we were one of the first large districts that implemented Provision 2, which is because we had such a, a low-income community, we were able to eliminate applications and offer free meals to all of our children. And when we did that, one of our principals during a summer meals program wanted to expand the, the breakfast because a lot, a lot of the we needed to offer the summer meals program, but there were a lot of students that weren't going all the way back to the cafeteria to get the breakfast. The buses would come in; they'd go straight to the classroom. Mm-hmm. So he and the cafeteria supervisor said, "Let's just move the line. Let's put the breakfast in a sack, in a bag. Uh, breakfast in the bag. They'll take it to the classroom. We'll let them eat in the classroom." And he immediately started to notice some changes. The children were more focused. They were well more uh, better behaved. Uh, they were not having as many referrals to the principal's office, and so he noticed some significant changes after offering students breakfast. And so he asked for a meeting, and and we discussed the possibility of expanding it to his high school, where where this program was started. Yet two thousand. Uh, students at that high school, and so we just figured out the logistics and got it got it going and um, that received just national attention because mm-hmm. his um, not only did he, was he able to report um, less trips to the nurse 's office and and reduction of of uh, behavior problems, but he also noticed an increase in his test scores. And so, you know, with that, I did a number of articles at at that time and uh, have, you know, continued to be just a a strong advocate 
before breakfast. We expanded after that program got started. Then we had um, most all of the schools there in Brownsville on the breakfast program, and now they have it district-wide. I love it, the Breakfast in the Classroom origin story. And so this was what year you were doing this? This was in 93. So it took a while for it to take off nationally. Um, But this is, you know, this was an important foundation for what we've since seen as as really an explosion in the popularity of Breakfast in the Classroom. Well, and I think it was also through the support of the School Nutrition Foundation, because mm-hmm. when I went to become director at Dallas ISD, I realized at that time by looking at the numbers that in Brownsville, which was a fourth the size of Dallas, we were actually serving more breakfasts in that district than we were in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And so we really, you know, tried a number of different initiatives, and it wasn't until the School Nutrition um, Foundation offered a grant to run some pilots and and do some community outreach to be able to get the support and of different advocate groups and of the community to support a universal breakfast mm-hmm. program. And so um, because of that, then uh, the community uh, got behind it, our school board got behind it, and and then um, it was around 2010 we started the pilots, and now in this, this past year, it, all of the schools in, in Dallas uh, will be offering uh, breakfast in the classroom. Incl- and also so, so many across the country. But it, it took a while, as we can see, from when you began it to where we are now. Um, so, you know, going, you know, looking ahead to sort of the, your, the, 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 your final years there, you know, you, you had... Um, this, you face the same issues that d- school districts across the country were facing in the 80s and 90s with rising labor costs and the need to um, move away from some of the scratch cooking that you valued so much. I mean, you know, what was your experience during those years? Well, in my last years, uh, the first years were were really more involved with re- doing some restructuring and updating our our training programs. We felt we needed to teach beyond just technical skills, but also to teach leadership and supervision and team building. And that was part of the foundation that I think made our later years uh, easier because we needed to work together as a team to be able to make some of these other changes. And mm-hmm. beyond breakfast in in the classroom, we, we did that. We also moved toward uh, uh, also having free meals for all students. We've implemented a provision to and then on to community eligibility to where mm-hmm. all of our children were eligible. But uh, in, the, in the final years, we really were able to work together with other large districts with the challenges of being able to get higher quality product, um, work more toward the sustainability of of our programs as far as um, moving from foam trays to compostable trays oh, and so looking you're, at you're our environment. You're actually looking at Dallas. And, yeah. and doing, in Dallas and right. doing mm-hmm. more farm-to-school programs and developing school gardens. The Urban School Food Alliance came about. Right. And uh, w- we worked together um, a, n- a number of school districts, and I know you're familiar with the Urban School Food Alliance, mm-hmm. but they are uh, Los Angeles and New York and Chicago and Miami-Dade and Orange County and Dallas. And so together we kind of brainstormed uh, a few years ago on how we could improve child nutrition and the image of school nutrition. And so together we we came up with a plan. First thing we did is is um, we planned a one day that we all served the same menu to find some commonalities. And chicken was one of the most popular that all of us had on our menu. And so we worked toward developing specifications for an antibiotic-free right. uh, chicken. Right. So now altogether we have moved our specifications in that direction. And I think that has created a trend. We've also uh, together worked on specifications to 
move toward compostable trays. Right. We we did a whole episode on that, and that's when you were last here with us. So I'm posting a link to that show on today's show page because that effort is fast, uh, fascinating. And Dora, you are fast forwarding to Dallas, which is which is fine because we are ready to take a station break. Um, and after that, I, I do want to talk more about your work in Dallas. But one more question about Brownsville before we leave. You you were the first dietitian there, starting in the 70s. By the time you left, there were there were a number in Brownsville, which I think reflects a trend nationally. Um, you know, how, how many more had joined the district, and, and, and would you say that was going on all over the country at that point? I, I don't know that it was going on um, as as a trend at that time, but I think the reason it wasn't is because there weren't uh, a great number of registered dietitians that knew about school nutrition. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we did before I left uh, Brownsville and and maybe in between is worked with the University of uh, Pan American, which was a four-year university, and they uh, we worked together with the hospital that started the traineeship program that I went to to become a registered dietitian and partnered uh, on helping them develop a coordinated undergraduate program. Mm -hmm. And so with that, then many dietitians that were going through that program, one of their rotations was school nutrition. And so we did a very good job of encouraging them to to go into the profession and where I was the first one in school nutrition at that time, I would say by the time I left, there were about four on staff to five, and then many of the school districts in South Texas have registered dietitians right. on staff. Right. So you were really part part of the process there, making that happen. So, Dora, we're going to pause for station break, and when we come back, as I said, we're going to um, go to Dallas, uh, where you serve for 15 years. You are listening to Inside School Food, and today's conversation is with Dora Rivas. Stay with us. Today's program was brought to you by Nutrislice. Nutrislice wants to see you succeed. They help school nutrition programs who want to do a little more with their marketing communications. Nutrislice is all about helping people increase their nutrition IQ. Their products are designed to engage, educate, and inspire greater levels of personal wellness. Whether you're interested in communicating the virtues of your nutrition program, upping your game in the fight against childhood obesity, saving money, or becoming more innovative, Nutrislice has the tools for you. They can help you reduce food waste by getting kids excited about eating healthy foods. Is your program serving healthy foods but not getting the credit it deserves? Nutrislice can help you communicate all the great things you're doing to parents, students, school administrators, and the community. They can also help you gain critical customer insights to your business. They've worked with the most innovative school nutrition programs in the country, big and small, and their experience speaks for itself. Get in touch today to see what Nutrislice can do for you. That's Nutrislice.com. You still paying attention? Are you there? Hello, 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 hello. I'm talking to you. Hi. Hey, this is Jack Inslee. I'm the executive producer here at Heritage Radio Network. I've been here at the station since 2009, and I cannot believe just how much this network has grown over that time. We've been able to grow because of donations from people like you. So if you're enjoying this, if you laughed, if you learned something, contribute anything. A dollar, two dollars, ten dollars, a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars. I don't know who you are or what you can contribute, but anything counts. And trust me, we'll appreciate seeing your name come through on the donations. So consider visiting heritageradionetwork.org. Click on that little beating heart, the donate button, and show us you care. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back, and thank you for that, Mrs. Jack. And here in the studio today to reinforce that is our executive director, Erin Fairbanks. Welcome hey. to Inside School Food, Erin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I have to apologize for my scratchy voice. I'm a little under the weather today, but um, wanted to come by and say, well, first and foremost, to say thank you, Laura, for creating such a wonderful show. It's been great to 
at Inside School Food to the collection of programming that we do. It's definitely one of the programs that comes up the most for me when I'm out talking about the importance of our work, because I really can't think of anything else quite like it. it it's true. And i um, you know, I feel that it's it's the only opportunity for people working in this industry, which is very close to my heart, to really hear from their peers. As you know, here in today's show, Dora Rivas is someone who is well known within the school nutrition industry, not so much outside. But you know, for her to have an opportunity to kind of look back on her career and 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 kind of share her role in the in the the development of programs that that you know, we rely on now is a unique opportunity. And and I also have to say that my audience um, is insanely busy. And, <laughs> and that the idea of podcast format is so great for them because it's easy listening. It's just conversation. They can stick it on their phone and take it with them. It's only a half an hour. I mean, there's a place for webinars in life. I listen to a lot of them to gather material for my show. But I think of Inside School Food as the anti-webinar. Your hands are free. Your eyes are free. You can just listen. You can just listen, plug yeah. it in on your walk to work. Well, and we are excited um, at the network to be able to bring that to you every week and to support the hard work that Laura is doing and all of her guests demonstrate week after week. Um, but this time of year, we do have to come and ask you, Inside School Food listeners, to do your part, to chip in a couple of bucks if you believe in the show's work, if you want to support its mission we are a 501c3 nonprofit radio station. We are completely dependent on the support of listeners like you and our collection of underwriters. And so asking, making a brief appeal to visit our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We've got a big beating heart in the top right-hand corner. And if you select um, from that menu there, you can make a donation. Again, really any amount helps. Um, you know, if every Heritage Radio listener just you know, chipped in a buck, we would be, we would be doing great. So we're not That's asking true. a lot. We're just asking you to give, um, you know, what feels significant to you? What is, what does it mean to you to have a program like Inside School Food um, happening every week? And, and we want to hear from you. I know Laura wants to know that uh, you're out there, that you're listening, that you're lending your support through a small financial contribution. You can actually note uh, there's a drop down menu so you can make a selection to say, hey, Inside School Food, you know, sent me. You can even send Laura a little message there. I know she would love to hear from I you. I love hearing from my listeners and I would love to know who you are because I'm an old fashioned kind of girl and I would like to thank you personally <laughs> if you donate to the show. And we would like to thank you too. We've got some great gifts, you know, t-shirts, uh, cookbooks, um, slate boards. It's a whole kind of array of small tokens of our thanks in addition to um, our commitment to keep bringing you great programming week after week. So I will uh, jump out of your way and let you get back to what you tuned in for. Thanks so much, Laura. Thanks for coming in, Aaron. Okay. Um, just as a reminder, folks, we are really pleased to have Dora Rivas on the show today for the second time, and this time to reflect back on her years in the Texas schools, first as a dietitian and then food service director in the border city of Brownsville, followed by 15 years in Dallas, where Dora served as executive director of food service for one of the largest districts in the nation. And for much of that time, Dora has also served on the national stage. Uh, most notably as president of the School Nutrition Association in 2009 and 10. So, Dora, you went to Dallas, and was it a shock? I mean, how much bigger was it than Brownsville? I think for me the most intimidating thing, and my husband and I, we, you know, periodically, you know, reflect on when we were first driving into the big city of Dallas, having come from a rural community, and then driving in and watching the whole cars whiz by us on <laughs> both sides, and and just the, the enormous city. And I think my first thought was, what are the, what are the people? Uh, what are, are the employees going to be like? Um, are they going to be as nurturing and as caring and warm with with the students? You think of a big city, and sometimes you don't think that that there is that same warmth. And I was just so pleasantly surprised when I started going and visiting the schools, listening to the cafeteria employees 
talking to the students and calling them my babies mm-hmm. and come here, sweetie. And in in um, Brownsville, it was uh, come here, mijito, and come here, mijita, and <laughs> and so now in Dallas, it was come here, baby, and and so you know the same warmth that was there, the same nurturing instinct that cafeteria employees had in South Texas existed in in Dallas. And I I often refer Dallas as to the big city with a small town heart because uh, all of the changes that you know, we were able to make was because there was a genuine interest from both the community and the school community and and the outside, you know, city of of Dallas in trying to do what was best for our children, recognizing that childhood obesity was a problem. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, so when I, I first arrived, I thought, how hard is it going to be to really, um, uh, communicate the enormity of the problem and discovered very quickly that there were already a lot of of uh, organizations and groups working toward having a community hearings and town hall meetings mm-hmm. and looking for answers on how to make a difference in in the lives of our children and, and in the lives of, of the community. Which was very different from Brownsville, where you had to bring them along with you. These, these folks perceive themselves as ahead of you, so you needed to work quickly to earn their trust. Um, what did you do? And, and that's true. They, in, in a lot of cases, they wanted to take us beyond, beyond much more quickly than, than uh, we were really uh, set up for or that the children would accept the changes uh, as quickly. So, you know, we went on ahead and uh, used a similar approach, um, went to uh, some of the parents' uh, groups and uh, described to them what what we were doing. There were really a lot of great things that we were already doing, but a lot of times parents don't know what we're doing. And mm-hmm. so we had to communicate to them that a pizza was not just a pizza, but that the pizza had whole grain, uh, was made from whole grain, and that it was a lower sodium pizza, and that the cheese was made w- with uh, skim milk mozzarella. And these were all new things. And that we were just as interested in them changing the the habits of students moving away from pizza to other food items, but that in order to bring children into the cafeteria, you have to have a menu that is kid-friendly, that children are going to really gravitate to, or else they will not go through the doors. And so if parents in in the community and in our society are taking them to fast food places where they're getting their favorite chicken nuggets and pizza and hamburgers, we have to include them and incorporate them into the menu. Mm -hmm. And so once they understood that and understood that we were working toward transitioning to more fresh cooked foods as well as trying to expand and asking for their support to have school gardens to help educate children about where their food came from. Then we started to uh, get their buy-in and support, uh, as well as them understanding how much money we had to work with. And Mm -hmm. when some of their children that were going perhaps to private schools where they had to pay three and four dollars for their meal and realized that we only get two dollars and, you know, 60 cents for for the meal, uh, then, you know, they realized that there was a shortcoming there and that they needed to support the child nutrition programs and advocate, you know, for uh, funding to, to our programs, not just for the food, but also for nutrition education. And all of those things together and over time, I think that was the other, the other piece that we had had to uh, explain to them that it's not. This is not a change you make overnight. Mm-hmm. So we started making the changes for uh, improving the menus and changing 
um, to what was going to be the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, we started with the uh, Healthier U.S. Challenge criteria and started working on implementing that before the requirement. So we were pretty, we were transitioning the children for, for change. And, uh, and so I think at the same time, we were also helping the parents understand that changes took time. And so through, throughout the process, uh, we had very good support uh, yeah, from the community. Yeah. But it can take hard work to establish that understanding, especially when, you know, there are parents with experience of private school meals. Here in New York City, there are private schools that charge $9 for lunch. Um, so can you tell one parents, you know, in, in, uh, you know, attached to one of those schools, how little a public school has? It's just, just you know, kind of shocking. Um, I know that you've spoken very compellingly about the need for um, more funding, both for nutrition education and for food, to meet um, the the requirements of Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. Um, you had a wonderful conversation with uh, Bettina Elias Siegel of the Lunch Tray about that, which I'm going to post on today's um, show page. But do you want to say anything else about the, the just the, the need for funding and um, the need to, for us to be continue to speak up about it? Well, I, I think uh, what Congress um, and the community have to understand is that it, they have very high expectations. We have very high expectations, and we want the very best for our students. But to be able to bring uh, that level of nutrition to our students, it does cost more than, uh, and, and especially whenever you are going to be doing more of the production of fresh mm-hmm. food, of, of the fresh scratch cooking. There's, we went through, when I was in, in Brownsville, we, because we had, I was involved in the in the uh, design and building of schools, we were designing our kitchens to have more uh, cooler space because we were doing a lot of scratch cooking. And through the years, we did more freezers Mm -hmm. space because we were bringing more food in that was already pre-prepared. Well, we're having a movement back to do more scratch cooking, which and and offer more fresh fruits and vegetables, which then moves the the equipment need to more um, cooler space. And so there is an infrastructure change beyond the food, as well as labor costs. All of those food costs, uh, all of those things are higher than they were. Mm-hmm. And and so to keep up with the needs and be able to produce the quality that we want and we expect from our schools as well, uh, what I say is we want as parents as well as what we need to produce at schools, it, it needs to keep up. The funding needs to keep up as well as we have to incorporate nutrition education and coordinate with other teams on the campus and have coordinated school health to where we're all working together as a school community to have more exercise and recess incorporated mm-hmm. and and be able to collaborate on if you're offering an activity through the health education department, let's collaborate and run it at the same time with an activity that's going on in the cafeteria. All of those um, collaborations and are, are all going to end up benefiting the student. But teaching schools and teaching food service directors and the, the whole school community takes educating them and it takes time to uh, time and money to be able to implement. Yeah, it, it is a big challenge. You were able to get quite far with it in Dallas. You um, achieved the most 
Healthier U.S. School Challenge Awards of any district in the nation um, under your leadership. Um, but as you say, I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative that you're still, you know, keeping up that we need more funding drumbeat, even though you have moved on from school food. It's an important point. Um, so, Dora, in your, your final few years in Dallas, you, you, you know, in addition to um, joining um, Dallas ISD with the Urban School Food Alliance and, and doing those really interesting um, procurement um, projects that you talked about with chicken and compostable plates, you, you, did, you did some more radical things. You want, you want to talk about some of the, the, your, your final flourishes on your way out of Dallas? Well, I think that... Um what I have learned uh, through through the years, uh, we implemented breakfast in the classroom. We've modified our training program. Um, I think one of my my greatest um, feel good you know moments is whenever we were able to offer uh, a good, healthy, quality meal to all of our children at no cost. And of course, I would like to see that expand nationally. I think all children are entitled, um, just like they are uh, receiving books and an education, that nutrition should be mm-hmm. a part of it and a, and a good breakfast to start their day so that they can learn is as is, is, is important and should be a part of what we provide, you know, our children. So having provided um, breakfast and lunch uh, was very important, as well as we also expanded after-school supper program. Uh, education is, is a real high priority in our education systems, and so in order to keep up many of our principals were offering after-school programs, and so many of them told us that the kids were hungry by that late afternoon, and mm-hmm. and uh, parents are working, and, and so by the time they get home, a lot of the kids were just really uh, not as focused as they could be as if if they had uh, a supper program. And when we told them we could offer after-school supper to them, they were very excited. And so we uh, expanded to almost half, half of our, uh, more than half of our elementary schools are offering after-school uh, supper program. That's a lot in a district that size. Um, and we're starting to see more supper programs across the country, but it sounds like you were kind of driving that movement um, in Dallas to some extent, yes? I, I think so, mm-hmm. uh, because as soon as it became available, we jumped on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so we had quite a number of school districts that came, and we were glad to be able to share, you know, our procedures and everything. One of the things, and you know, when you asked me uh, to do the program and kind of reminisce, um, I thought about, um, you know, what I'd, what I'd learned from all of this through through the years and and you know how we and I I don't take personal credit through the years both in Brownsville and in Dallas it's always been a, a team effort mm-hmm. but I also credit a lot to to mentoring and and the people that I learned from and and you know I I always give credit to you know and I and as I think also of this being December and the significance of the season and and uh, Christmas and mm-hmm. a time of gift giving I I think of of those that gave to me of of their time and their lessons um, uh, I had quite a number of really great mentors that I learned um, my first mentors being my parents and in, in teaching me a, a good work ethic, mm-hmm. a strong work ethic, having been raised on a farm and and knowing that for work um, there was no rest on a farm. It was twenty four seven. If you know, um, and and uh, in my migrant uh, in the prig- migrant program where I worked, the sister that I worked with, Sister Ramona, in fact, she received a two thousand eight. Peacemaker Award from uh-huh. she was a um, a nun and she received that from the Franciscan Federation. Mm-hmm. She she taught me you know to be compassionate and and to be service you know oriented mm-hmm. and and then in the hospital 
um, the dietitian that I worked with, Gretchen Haggard, and she was she was a leader in national um, with a dietetic association and and started the first, some of the first uh, intern training programs back then. But taught me about structure and organization, as well as when people would ask to share. She says you would always share what you learned and share with others, and so that you know gave me the motivation to really continue to work with interns, even even while I was in Dallas. One of the last things, one of one of the things that we did in the last few years is started a school nutrition specialist intern program. In fact, oh. I have. Right now, uh, while I am at APHIS, we have interns that are coming to learn about our program that we have overseas with them. And and so my, my lifelong um, mentor has been Gertrude Applebaum, who always, and I've had her the longest for about 30 years, uh, who taught me about just analyzing and studying and and about continuing to grow. And so I I think... As I reflect over the years, I think what I've learned most is is the the giving back part and and the importance of having a purpose in our in our life to be able to take what we've learned and then be able to continue to give and share. Oh, those are beautiful words, Dora. I, I... I, you know, I think that's the place to finish. I mean, above all, school food service is a giving and sharing profession. Um, and one of the things I love doing about this show is that there's never a sense of, well, I don't want to share my best practices because there's competition. There is no competition. Um, it's 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 just beautiful. And 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 just just thank you for those words about it. Um, it's been great having you back on the show and um, and really great hearing your personal piece of school food history. Um, so uh, you have been listening to Inside School Food, and this has been a special episode with Dora Rivas. Um, she's been witness to and a driver of some of the most significant reform in school food service in recent decades in Texas and nationally. So thank you, Dora, for coming back. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you, uh, and uh, Merry Christmas Same to everyone, to you. all your listeners. Same to you. <laughs> um, I'm Laura Stanley, and as you know, as I always say, um, I like to know who you are, and uh, it's. I think it's helpful to um, our wonderful um, uh, supporter, Nutrislice, also to know who you are. So please consider following Inside School Food on Facebook, on Twitter, or by signing up for the Inside School Food newsletter, which you can get to on InsideSchoolFood.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.